You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So look, today I want to offer a teaching message, which means it's going to be a little longer than what we have become used to. Uh, in a pre-pandemic world, this is going to feel more like the way I used to teach. <laughs> in a post-pandemic world, and in a pandemic world, this is going to feel a little longer. But it's important that we offer a teaching message. We can only do this for so long. So we need to, uh, we need to have time to sit with the text a little while longer. All right? So if you want, on page 4, there is a lot of notes. Uh, page 4, there's room for notes. On page 5, there's a lot of notes. It's in the smallest font we could possibly find. Um, <laughs> to fit on one page because, in John's defense, I gave this to him last minute. This is what happens when you work with me. I end up giving you last minute things. I apologize, John. Um, but you can pull it up on you version. Everything you need is there. Um, so there you have it. It's in, there in the worship guide. I want to make sure that we have notes. All right, so in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Peter writes, But you are a chosen people, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a people of treasured possession for this purpose, that you may declare the wondrous deeds of the one who gave you the calling and summoned you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, last week we talked about how this is a declaration of identity and self-understanding of the church. In other words, the church should understand herself in light of this text. This text should have a voice in how we understand a church and a church's role in the world. And I can't help but wonder what would happen if we dug deep, each one of us, if you and I dug deep in our own hearts and thought deeply about what it means to be a member of a kingdom of priests, men and women, priests in the kingdom of God. How would it form our church's life together? How would it influence our life together as we engage society, especially in a world that always seems to be on fire? We talked about last week how this is a mashup for Peter. A mashup of Exodus 19, Hosea 2, and Isaiah 43. And so what I want to do this morning is read the text that John referred to, and I want to sit with that text in Exodus 19 so we can catch the heart of this text, make the connection to Peter's usage of the text, and make the connection to our current moment. Exodus 19, verse 2. This is on Mount Sinai. All right, This is when the commands and all the things are happening. This is when the people of God are becoming an organized people of God. They traveled from Rephidim, came into Sinai Desert, and set up camp there. Israel camped there in front of the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called him to the mountain. The Lord called to him from the mountain. Sorry. This is what you should say to Jacob's household and declare to the Israelites, God said. You saw what I did to the Egyptians and how I lifted you up on eagles' wings and brought you to me. So now... If you faithfully obey me and stay true to my covenant, you will be my most precious possession out of all the peoples, since the whole earth belongs to me. Verse 6, you will be a kingdom of priests for me and a holy nation. These are the words you should say to the Israelites. All right, that's the text. God's desire for Israel was to give them a law that when obeyed, they would become a kingdom of priests to God and to all nations. As Isaiah 60 says, they were to be a light unto the nation. So by following God's law of love, they would declare and demonstrate God's holiness and love to the world. How they treat each other would be different from how other nations treat each other. 
how they took care of the most vulnerable would be different than how other nations took care of the vulnerable. How they managed their economy would be very different than other nations, whether it be the canceling of debts every seven years as the law commanded or the release of all lands and properties to original family bloodlines every 49th year and so on. If they followed the law, they would become a kingdom of priests, demonstrating and declaring the love and the holiness of God's. God's desire for them was to be so grounded in their identity as God's treasured possession and chosen beloved that they'd be a blessing to the world. They could be a blessing to the world because they were blessed by God. But they'd have to trust this declaration of identity. They would have to live into their calling. And we know that it didn't quite work. So God had to assign a select group of Israelites to serve as the priesthood. Now, I want to sketch out really quickly. It's so sad that I have to say really quickly because, I mean, this is our life, right? Like our faith is our life. But I need to sketch out the role of a priest in Israel. I'm going to try and give it to us away in a way that we can remember because this is such a pivotal point in our, in our own life. So a priest in Israel had a really big job, right? Like, so first, we need to remember that the temple, the temple was understood as the place where God lived. So the temple was understood in the life of the Israelite as the meeting place between heaven and earth. Like, that's how the temple was understood, is that it was a meeting place, the intersection between heaven and earth, because it's where God dwelled. And this was common Jewish understanding. So priests were assigned by God to take care of the temple from tending the grounds to managing the property, but they were also assigned religious responsibilities and religious authority. Everybody say religious authority. Yeah, everybody in the room and everybody on the camera, right? Religious authority. So priests pronounced blessings. Everybody say blessings. They pronounced blessings over God's people. They were a mouthpiece for God, right? They declared God's love and truth over God's people. And sometimes it included a pronouncement of woes, which is not kind, like, which is like, this is, gonna, this is the bad stuff that's going to happen if we rebel. But it also included God's love and declarations of identity. Priests were also confessors. Everybody say confessors. They were confessors between God and God's people. Now, what I mean by confessor is that they were spiritual guides. Right? They confessed the sins of God's people to God. They oversaw and conducted the sacrificial offerings to God on behalf of God's people. Priests performed rituals. And these rituals were sacramental. By sacramental, what I mean is that they were enacting on earth what was happening in heaven. Are you with me? So sacramental means. It wasn't just symbolic. There was a belief of mystery that what was happening on earth was actually happening in heaven, which gave it more authority, right? And so since the priests were the ones who were allowed to come directly into the presence of God, in a sense, they were a human gateway between heaven and earth. This gave the priests significant religious authority. All right, but because of their important role in the life of God's nation... Priests also had political responsibilities and authority. Everybody say political authority. See, the priests oversaw the sacrifices and rituals and cared for the temple grounds and addressed the matters of law, including economics even. They managed the temple treasury. It's how they could make sure that the poor, the widow, the immigrant, and the orphan were cared for as the law commanded. 
It's also how they made sure that the poorest Israelite among them could still offer sacrifices to God. What may be hard for us to imagine because of how we think about our faith in our country is how their religion actually governed their lives. Like it wasn't an option. And it also wasn't just about being good moral people. Religion was called the law of Moses because it was a politic. The tenets of their faith and their worship determine how they understood everything about life, from education to economics to issues of mercy to issues of justice to issues of morality. Their worship and relationship with God was an all-encompassing reality. To be religious was to be political. To be political was to be religious because both and every aspect of life were covered. Every belief and ethic mattered to God. And the priest played a pivotal role in this. And so it makes sense that if priests were divinely assigned to oversee the religious, that they would play a political role in the life of God's people. Priests addressed how their actions, how the people of God's actions and decisions reflected the teachings of the law of Moses, which was their governance. And so this included matters of morality, economics, and justice. And church, this is why when the priesthood became corrupt, it was a really big problem for the nation of Israel. They had political and religious authority, and they could wield it. And if wielded incorrectly, it created havoc in the life of God's people. But if wielded properly, for the glory of God and the good of God's people, it could be life-giving. They could declare and demonstrate the love and truth of God toward one another and to other nations. So, if I had to simplify all this, right, I would say that priests were a divinely assigned people whose job was to bless, everybody say bless, confess, say confess, and address, everybody say address, all matters of life pertaining to God. I needed something that rhymes, so bless, confess, and address worked. But it makes sense. It works, actually. The priests were to bless God's people with declarations of truth and love on behalf of God who was present with them. They were to confess the needs of God's people in light of the love and truth of God who is present among them. They were to address matters of morality and justice because of the love and truth of God who is present among them. They were to declare and demonstrate the law of Moses so that God's people would understand how love should be their law, hospitality, their posture, solidarity, a shared sense of being, their mindset, justice, their concern, and compassion, their practice. But here's the thing. Let's remember, go back to Exodus chapter 19. God wanted all his people to be a kingdom of priests, not just a select few. God wanted all his people to be a community that blesses, confesses, and addresses. God wanted all his people to be, to both bless and be a blessing to all peoples of the earth by how they declare and demonstrate the love and truth of God who is present among them. God wanted all of his people to confess the needs created by the sickness of sin for all the people of the world in light of the love and truth of God who is present among them. God wanted all the people to address matters of morality and justice for all people of the earth by how they declare and demonstrate the love and truth of God who is present 
among them. God wanted all of his people to be a kingdom of priests, not just a select few. God wanted his people to live as a missional community of chosen people, a kingdom of priests and holy nation, to be a human gateway between heaven and earth. A people, a people where the reign of God is made visible. Everybody say visible. Where the reign of God is made visible to the world. That's what I mean by human gateway. Where the reign of God was made visible to the world. To bless, to confess, to address. You see, they could do this because they're the chosen beloved of God. This is God's assurance based upon God's declaration. And this becomes Peter's assurance to us based upon the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. Jesus has served as our high priest, as Hebrews says, and has assigned us to be, as his people, a kingdom of priests, men and women, to be a kingdom of priests. It's what the church has called for, hundred year, for hundreds of years the priesthood of all believers. This means the church is called to a vocation, not a vacation. Right? Like we have a divine assignment. Because when the scriptures say we are God's chosen beloved, it's not speaking of favoritism, but a relationship, identity, and purpose. To be chosen means to be seen, loved, and set aside for a special role to play. So hear me out, beloved. Each one of us, as a member of this church, has a special role to play. And then collectively, as a kingdom of priests, we are to bless our world, starting in our city, and be a blessing by how we declare and demonstrate the love and truth of God who is present among us. We are to confess the needs created by the sickness of sin for all people in light of the love and truth of God who is present among us. God wants us to address matters of morality and justice for all people by how we declare and demonstrate the love and truth of God who is present among us. God wants us to be a people where the reign of Christ is made visible to the world. And that's a kind of human gateway between heaven and earth. Love should be our law. Hospitality, which literally means a kinship of strangers, a kinship love of strangers, should be our posture. Solidarity, a shared mindset of suffering and joy, should be our mindset. Justice should be our concern, and compassion should be our practice. And here's the thing. If we do not live into our assignment as a kingdom of priests, we cannot faithfully bear witness to the good news of the gospel and the hope it brings. And we will lose sight as Christ followers. We will lose sight of love and truth and get sucked into a culture of conflict. So do you see how this kingdom of priests has a story that's longer, <laughs> that's a long story that's rooted in old teachings of scripture? And that's where Peter's coming from, y'all. That's the implication. Mike McGee and I were talking last week. And we both lamented how we expect, like we can expect society to hold tightly to idols and remain unwilling to confess and address the sin sickness in society. We can expect that to happen. We can expect a blurring of lines when it comes to what is love and truth. And as a consequence, Mike said, and I want to quote him, we don't hold the and well, the A-N-D, the and well. The and of love and truth. And I agree. And I would add that our, ability, our inability to hold the and well makes it hard for us to hold the and 
in guilt and responsibility, joy and lament, hospitality and boundaries, justice and mercy, compassion and accountability. We can't expect society to hold the and well because society is always looking for an either us, an either or us versus them mentality, right? An either or us versus them way of doing things when it doesn't work out. And when it doesn't work out, they try to blame someone else like the media, like, the media is the evil of all things, right? That's the way we talk about it. As if the media is not a reflection of us, but that's probably another conversation. Bottom line is we expect society to be schooled in denial with leaders who serve as its professors and teachers. But we shouldn't expect that of the church. The church should readily withdraw from this school of denial and enroll as students of Jesus to become kingdoms of priests. Like, we should stand ready to confess love and truth and what isn't, and then address the sin sicknesses with tears in our eyes. As a kingdom of priests, we should declare and demonstrate with our lips and lives the good news of God's kingdom. And if, but if we keep taking classes, if you and I keep taking classes at the school of denial, nothing will change. Right, like this culture of conflict will overtake us. We'll not know how to hold the and well either. The and of love and truth, guilt and responsibility, joy and lament, hospitality and boundaries, justice and mercy, compassion and accountability. And we as the church need to withdraw from the school of denial taught by the United States of America and embrace love as our law, hospitality as our posture, solidarity as our mindset, justice as our concern, and compassion as our practice, because we are a kingdom of priests. And here's what I think it means practically. So turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 12. I want to I I look at this. We're going to be in this text for the next two weeks, so we're not going to unpack it in total right now. I just want to settle for a short reflection in light of what we've said, so we can see what this means. So here's what's happening. What's happening here in Corinth is that the Christians in the church are falling into a trap of believing that some of them are better to, uh, than others due to spiritual gifts and spiritual lineage. And all of that would be enough to address. But what else is happening, if we read chapters 8 through 14, is that the rich are neglecting the poor in the church. Some of them think they are better than others due to ethnic roots. Their spiritual superiority, social classism and ethnic superiority that's creating a sense of division and hurting the whole church in Corinth. And so we're going to pick up in the middle of chapter 12 where Paul begins to anchor his whole teaching in order to correct this. Again, we're going to look at this in detail over the next couple of weeks for sake of time, but for now, let's just read it. Okay, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. Christ is just like the human body. You catch that? He's going to speak in analogy, metaphor, all kinds of things, right? A body is a unit and has many parts, and all of the parts of the body are one body, even though they are many. We were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Listen to what Paul says. Whether Jew or Greek, or slave or free, and we are all given one spirit to drink. Certainly the body isn't one part, but many. If the foot says, I'm not a part of the body because I'm not a hand, does that mean it's not part of the body? If the ear says... I'm not part of the body because I'm not an eye. Does that mean it's not part of the body? Pause. Like, what do you think was going through Paul's mind when he's writing this out? Like, I've always wondered, like, as he gives an anatomy lesson to the church and spiritualizes it, what he must have been thinking. 
Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, what would happen to the hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, what would happen to the sense of smell? But as it is, listen to this, verse 18, God has placed each one of the parts in the body just like you wanted. If all were one and the same body part, what would happen to the body? But as it is, there are many parts but one body. So the eye can't say to the hand, I don't need you. Or in turn, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Instead, the parts of the body that people think are the weakest are the most necessary. Come on now. I have to get a more charismatic praise team. <laughs> the parts of the body that we think are the weakest are the most necessary the parts of the body that we think are less honorable are the ones we honor most the private parts of our body that aren't presentable are the ones that are given the most dignity the parts of our body that are presentable don't need this dignity but god has put the body together giving greater honor to be to the part with less honor so that there won't be division in the body, and so the parts might have mutual concern for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part gets the glory, all the parts celebrate with it. You are the body of Christ and parts of each other. Ugh. So I'm going to pack that over the next two weeks. But here's what I think Paul's saying in kind of in short. You need each other in different ways and for different reasons. And each and every member has a valued role in the purposes of God and in your personal life as a follower of Jesus. Everybody matters in a deep, deep way. And what is true for them is true for us. But there is, and here's, here's the part that I want to really focus on, there's an ugly reality that the church must deal with, see? Each follower of Jesus lives their everyday life in a society that operates according to a set of rules that say, some people are more important than others. Some people are better than others. See, Corinth was a very diverse city, and as a major industrial hub of the Roman Empire, it was a global culture holding up a global economy. And there were laws in Corinth that favored some over others in Corinth. That's how laws can work. Some originated there, and some came from Rome. And in a society where honor and shame is a big deal, the lines of distinction based upon class, ethnicity, and social standing were also big deals. It was a society where, in some ways, there was equality, but not equity. Everybody might have a seat at the table, but some had to eat the scraps. Everybody was invited to the dance, but some wasn't allowed on the dance floor. And this was based less upon a person's chosen profession. Everybody say chosen profession. And more upon the things a person doesn't choose, like their ethnicity, ancestral heritage, or even gender. All of which did play a role in determining who could get certain jobs and therefore economic conditions. Some in the Corinthian society were honored and some were considered less honorable. And listen in on this section and how Paul, please catch this, how Paul is not going to deny the reality of these distinctions. Paul isn't choosing to act like these social realities and divisions aren't real. Paul is not going to advocate for some sort of economic blindness, gender blindness, or ethnic blindness, or ancestral blindness. That's not what he does. Paul knows these social realities influence how members think of each other. 
when it comes to spiritual gifts of those whose gift is better and who is worthy of what gift because that's what's happening. And Paul embraces these social realities. You want to know why? Because they exist. And he'll redefine them though. He redefines them in light of the declarations of the Christian faith in the way of Jesus. So listen again. Verse 13, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free. He doesn't say, therefore, this this doesn't even matter anymore. He's saying we come into the waters in our skin. We come into the waters with our ancestral heritage. We come into the waters with whatever we bring to the waters, and that's the life we enter into the church. So stay with me. So if the society works this way, and those who are more honorable have the most weight for them, and those who are least honorable have the least weight, they come into the church like this. This is how they enter in. And what Paul is trying to say is what God does is he gives greater honor to the less honorable for what reason? To balance the scales. He has to balance out the scales. Because if God doesn't do something, guess what we'll do as a society, Joe? We'll just keep living like this. So yes, the scripture says God will side with some. But not because God wants to side with some, but because we as a society create sides. And so God has to give preference to the less preferred. Y'all with me? Come on now. Because I got five minutes left. (laughs) God will give greater honor. Verse 24, the parts of the body that are presentable don't need this, but God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the part with less honor so that there won't be division in the body. Because if the church doesn't give greater honor to whom society says is least honorable, there will remain divisions in the body. The fact is, the scales of the Corinthian society tipped in favor of some over others. The sales of society were weighted favorably toward certain groups over others, like those with power, wealth, social standing, and right, ethnic heritage, nationality, and dominant gender class, which, by the way, was male. And that's how society worked, and it's how society works now. When the church doesn't confess and address these realities as a kingdom of priests, the mindset subtly works its way into the life of the church, just like it did Corinth. Come on. When the church chooses to believe or act like these social distinctions are not strong enough to influence the church and just cry out, can't we all just be one in Christ? Then the lived experience of every member will work its way into the church and threaten the very oneness and unity we cry out for. The caste system and classism of society will favor some over others and create a kind of spiritual classism just like it did in the Corinthian church. And so God will choose sides, but not because God wants to, but because we have a long history of creating sides and God will balance the scales, which sometimes looks like giving some more attention than others are favoring some over others. I will say it again. God balances the scales, which sometimes looks like giving some more attention than others are favoring some over others. And since society will always build scales that are out of balance and favor some over others, where there is a possibility of equality, but not necessarily equity, the Holy Spirit of God will offer an overcorrection in the church in order to correct the mindset 
of inequality and inequity of honorable and less honorable. Now I feel like I'm preaching and I got to end. When the Holy Spirit, when we allow the Holy Spirit to make this correction, things will change. But here's the thing. We must, we must be grounded in our identity because if we are not, some of us will get insecure and start feeling left out. We must have our identity as a kingdom of priests secure. Our chosen belovedness secure. Because if we don't, we won't hold the and well. And we certainly won't do what 26 says. If one suffers, all suffer. And if one gets glory, all celebrate. We have to purposefully and intentionally embrace our identity as God's chosen beloved and our vocation as kingdom of priests. We have to choose to bless our world starting in our city and be a blessing by how we declare and demonstrate the love and truth of God who is present among us. We have to choose to confess the needs of all people of the earth created by the sickness of sin and do so starting within the church in light of the truth and love of God before the presence of God. We have to choose to address matters of morality and justice for all peoples of the earth, starting with each other by how we declare and demonstrate the love and truth of God on behalf of God's presence among them. So, church, what does this look like? This is why we, WCC, declare this text every week. It is why we declare a rule of life. It is why we pray prayers that we pray and don't do what maybe some other churches do. For example, it's why we don't celebrate Mother's Day like some other churches We speak to it. See, we're filled with brothers and sisters who have different experiences with mothers. Some are life-giving experiences, and some are hard. Mother's Day can be hard for some and joyous for others. We can't celebrate something and ignore those who are hurting with it. So we do both, but we do it in a way that honors the ones who hurt. We've done that for years, y'all. Same with Father's Day. Nothing's new. But you know what? It's why we take time to speak to and acknowledge and pray over when social tragedies happen, like racial injustice and mass shootings or natural disasters, while we pause in our gathering and pray. Sometimes we address them directly, but we always confess them and offer prayers. And no, we do not do this for every single world event or loss and every single national event or loss. And let me tell you why. We do it for any event that in any way directly impacts the lives of our specific members in our church family. Beloved, the world is always on fire. But not every fire burns us in the same way. When those fires are felt in deep ways by members of our church, we will speak to them. Think about what would happen if every church in every part of the world, y'all, think about this. Come on, stay with me. We're about to close it up. Think about what would happen when every church, if every local church in every part of the world, in every city, town, and village made this their practice. Then every fire burning everywhere would be addressed by a local community of Christians. See, for that to happen, the church must be a kingdom of priests who declare and demonstrate with our lips and lives the good news of the God's kingdom and the truth of God's self-giving love, compassion, and divine hospitality. So as for Williamsburg Christian Church, 
in accordance to the teachings of the scriptures, we should be unafraid to speak over and again of the God who gives greater honor to those society treats as less honorable. We should band together and learn how to live in the tensions of the and. Love and truth, guilt and responsibility, joy and lament, hospitality and boundaries, justice and mercy, compassion and accountability, the kingdom of God that has come and not yet fully come. This kind of life takes practice and effort. It takes a school, y'all. And for followers of Jesus, our school is Williamsburg Christian Church. And being a part of this family means we have to learn how to live this kind of life together so that we can live this together life out into the city, into the world. This is how love becomes our law. Hospitality becomes our posture. Solidarity becomes our mindset. Justice becomes our concern. And compassion becomes our practice. Then we will be able to, as Peter said, declare the wondrous deeds of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Come on. So church, we pray this prayer, page 8. And we're going to pray this prayer every week for the rest of this series. It's a priestly prayer. And I said that this would be a, a, a series of practices. So here's my practice that I want to offer us as a church. Pray this prayer at home as a family. As many times in the week as you can. Maybe choose a day of the week where you pray this prayer over your dinners. Or over bedtime. Or in the mornings. But let this prayer be a prayer in home too. Now for those who are online who may not be able to pull this up. Your, your part is easy. Your part will be Lord Jesus Christ. Only you can make all things new. All right, so I'm going to ask all of us in this room to stand. And as a kingdom of priests, let us pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, your kingdom is good news for a world called in conflict, violence, and hostility. We ask that you would give us grace for the deep challenges facing us and what our role in this should be. Lord Jesus Christ, only you can make all things new. Lord, we confess our anger, our deep sadness, and our collective sense of, of weakness to see this world healed through our own strength. Lord Jesus Christ, only you can make all things new. Lord, we honestly confess that our world has a long history of conflict, of all forms of violence, including every nation, even our own. Help us to see how violence has been a strategy of evil powers and principalities. Lord Jesus Christ, only you can make all things new. Lord, we confess that the gospel is good news for all, for those who uphold violence and injustice and those who are pressed down by it. Both are liberated, but in different ways. Lord Jesus Christ, only you can make all things new. Lord, we confess that the gospel is your power to form a new people, not identified by violence, dominance, and superiority, but by unity in the spirit, where love is our law, hospitality is our posture, Solidarity is our mindset, justice is our concern, and compassion is our practice. We confess our need as your chosen beloved and kingdom of priests to humbly weep with those who weep, whether question those who weep. Lord Jesus Christ, only you can make all things new. Lord, we ask in the name of Jesus and in keeping with this humility that you would help each one of us name our part in this sin sickness whether we have sinned against others by seeing them as inferior or by attempting to manage another person's sorrow 
are making decisions that uphold justice, uphold violence and injustice rather than tear it down, or whether we have been silent in the face of evil. Holy Spirit of God, make us humble and help us see. Lord, forgive us of our sin. Lord Jesus Christ, only you can make all things new. Lord, we also pray for enemies of love, mercy, and justice, for those who have allowed satanic power to work through them. Grant them deliverance through your mighty power. Lord Jesus Christ, only you can make all things new. Lord, we ask that you would form us to be peacemakers. May we be people who listen with compassion and speak the truth with a sincere love as we join you in your work for a reconciled world. Lord Jesus Christ, only you can make all things new. Lord, we commit our lives to you, believing that you are working in the world in spite of destructive powers and principalities. Bring healing to those who are hurt, peace to those who are anxious, and love to those who are fearful. We wait for you, O Lord. Make haste to help us. Lord Jesus Christ, only you can make all things new. And in the name of Jesus, all God's people said, Amen. You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast.